0: Well, good evening and welcome again to Sunday night service. It's great to worship with you as we kick off kind of the month of October um, in worship together. Tonight we're going to be continuing and looking at the life of Noah in Genesis chapter 9. And so far we've seen through the story as God called Noah to build this ark. He did it. They went on. God saved them. And last week we looked as the the flood had gone away and, and Noah waited on God till finally they came out from the water. And tonight we're going to pick up this story. So if you have a Bible, we're going to be starting at the end of Genesis chapter 8 and going into Genesis chapter 9 this week. Well, when we were young, I'm guessing you're just like me, we wanted to make sure that when people gave us their word, they met it they meant it and and that they actually were going to do what they had said and from a very young age kids have this idea that promises should be kept there's significant things that should be kept and if you're like me if you wanted to be especially serious about a commitment to one another you would pinky promise right and if it was a pinky promise then it definitely had to be kept But we have ingrained in us as humans this idea that promises should be kept to one another. Which is why when promises aren't kept, they're so devastating and it's so hurtful and painful. And our lives are filled with promises. Not just promises that we make to certain people, but promises that we make to significant people in our lives and promises that God makes to us. And in tonight's passage, we're going to look at as God makes what is called a covenant with Noah, a covenant promise with Noah and in fact with you and with me and with all creation. The closest idea that we have now in our culture of a covenant relationship is a marriage relationship. It's interesting where we're standing, we're literally like four feet from where I got married and where I said to my wife words and we took vows and entered into a covenant relationship with one another, made promises that we meant to keep. And God is a covenant making God to his people. And as we look tonight at the covenants, the promises that he makes to Noah, we're going to look at three characteristics of these covenants that he makes back then that are still true in the covenants and the promise that God makes to us today. So we're going to start off tonight in Genesis chapter 8, verse 20. Noah has just gotten off the ark and it says this, Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man. For the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever strike down every living creature as I have done. While the earth remains, sea time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night, it shall not cease. So Noah comes off the ark and he builds an altar and presents an offering. It's an act of worship to God, of thankfulness because of the salvation that he has experienced through the flood. Through this judgment that came through the whole earth, God provided for him salvation. This offering was a burnt offering. He took at least one, we don't know how many, but probably at least one of each of the clean animals and offered it as a burnt offering. The idea of a burnt offering was that the animal itself would entirely be burned and it was a symbolic thing of entire devotion, entire surrender of one's self to the Lord by burning up an entire animal in thanksgiving to God. In response to this, it says that God smelled the pleasing aroma. Now, that's kind of weird at first, right? We're like, so did Noah add like a bunch of barbecue sauce? Like, did he marinate these animals? Did God just like the smell of smell? Like, what's going on? Did God smelled the pleasing aroma? Like, that is weird to how we think. But in Old Testament language and even into the New Testament, this idea of if a sacrifice was accepting to, not to God or if he rejected it was based on what the, the scriptures say, the aroma. And so when a, and a sacrifice would be accepted by God in Genesis and then in Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy, it would be a pleasing offering or a fragrant offering, meaning that God accepted it and was pleased by it. Where we see other instances in the Old Testament where God rejects the smell of the offering, meaning that he rejects the offering itself and it is not pleasing to him. It's interesting then knowing here that that an acceptable smell, that a pleasing aroma and a fragrant offering means that it's one not that literally just smells good, but one that God accepts. When we look to the sacrifice of Jesus in Ephesians chapter 5, it talks about how Jesus gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. It's picking up on this language that goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 8 where a fragrant offering is one that's pleasing to God. Jesus was one for us certainly and this offering is a pleasing one to God. But notice this, this covenant that God is about to make. He, he says, I will never again do this, right? I will never again curse the ground because of man. Now, does he say, I will never again curse the ground because of man? Because I sent the flood, they learned their lesson, and now it's going to be better. Now, look at this. I will never curse the ground again because the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth, It has a lot of parallels to how God looked at the earth before in Genesis chapter 6 verse 5 where it says that God saw the wickedness of man was great and that every intention of the thought of his heart was evil continually. Man is still here filled with evil, filled with wickedness even though he's only looking down at just a few people on the earth. So why does God choose to make a covenant with creation that still has evil in its heart? Well, the first characteristic of God's covenants is this, is that they are rooted in God's grace. God's covenant that he makes with the earth, God's covenants that he makes with us are rooted in God's grace. Grace is a word that we use a lot because it occurs a lot in scripture. But but what is grace? Grace is giving someone something they do not deserve. Grace is giving someone something they do not deserve. It goes against our ideas of efforts and earning that have so ingrained themselves into our culture and into our time. God does not look down and say, I'm going to make a covenant not to destroy the earth because man, look at how good Noah is. Look at how good his kids are. Look at how good his family is going to be. No, he says "Their, their hearts are still evil, but I'm gonna give them something they don't deserve. And I'm still going to make this promise to them. See, it goes against our cultural ideas that we have to earn things. We have to put effort into it to get something back. Well, it may be hard to believe because this year, if you're like me, it's felt like the longest yet the quickest year at the same time, right? Like parts of it has felt so long, but a lot of the years felt weird because we haven't done some of the normal things. So it's crazy to believe that it's already fall. It's October. Christmas is like two and a half months away. Like that's that blows my mind that Christmas is only a couple months away. And we, we, we see this cultural idea of, of earning things often in our cultural, how we discuss and talk about Christmas. Of course, when, when kids are brought up this idea of Santa Claus and this idea of who gets gifts at Christmas. Now, who does Santa give gifts to? Well, he gives it to the kids who are on the nice list, not on the naughty list. He gives it to the kids who have Earned them, not to the kids who have disqualified themselves because of their behavior. And so instead they get a bad gift or no gift at all. See, it's even rooted in how we talk about gifts at Christmas, this idea that if you've done something, then you've earned something else, whereas if you haven't done enough, then you haven't earned it. But it goes against the nature of a gift, is this it's not earned. A gift is because something is not earned. It's given freely, a gift is an act of grace. It's giving someone something they do not deserve. And so in our world that so pushes this idea that we need to get what we deserve, you get what you deserve. If you try hard enough, if you put in enough efforts, if you go to church or attend church online enough, if you give enough money, if you do enough good deeds, all of this, that will earn you something. God's message, God's covenant with us is this, you get what you don't deserve. We get what we don't deserve the clearest passage to God's giving us what we don't deserve. Grace given to us is in the gospel, or the book, excuse me, of Ephesians chapter two, which says this, for by grace, by grace, you have been saved through faith. This is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. See, God's covenants with us are all about Grace. God treats you how he does, not because you've earned it, but because of his grace. He makes a covenant here in Genesis chapter eight and nine, not because the people have earned it, but because he is a gracious God and grace flows from the hearts of the father to his people. And so our response to the grace of God should be like that of Noah, which is to give God total devotion. Right, Presenting this, this sacrifice of burnt offerings was to say, I, my life is totally devoted to you. And that too should be our response when we see, when we experience the unmerited grace of God in our lives. So the first characteristic of, of covenants is that they are rooted in God's grace. Well, it continues now into chapter 9. Chapter 9, starting at verse 1, says this. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea. Into your hands they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything, but you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. And for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning. From every beast, I will require it, and from man. From his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image." and you be fruitful and multiply, increase greatly on the earth and multiply in it. In this commands now, in this kind of post-flood world that God gives to Noah, there's a lot of similarities to Genesis chapter one and God's original creation mandate to Adam. Genesis chapter one, verse 28, sorry, as I flip there real quick, says this, God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth, subdue it, have dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on earth." That's Genesis 1.28 and he continues to, to use this language of multiplying, of filling the earth and subduing it. And as the creation mandate was given to Adam, so now this creation mandate is given to Noah in kind of this new world that he enters into after the flood. The food, so, so God specifically points out a few things here in this new world that he's given. First is the, the, the relationship with animals, right? It has somehow fundamentally changed. If you notice there in the language, the fear and the dread of you will be with the beasts. But he also says that now food will become from you, from animals. This is the first specific instance in which mankind is told that animals are provided for them to eat. We've seen them used for clothing, In Genesis chapter 3, we've seen them used for sacrifices in Genesis chapter 4. But now here in Genesis 9, the the animals are now a a means of which mankind can feed itself. Their relationship with the animals has now changed. But it's not as if you're to go to kill arbitrarily, right? That they still have value, this idea, which is a weird phrase, but would have fit very well within a Hebrew mindset, an Old Testament mindset of the life blood, kind of seems weird. But for, for them in their understanding, blood represented the life of an animal. And if you've ever read through your Old Testament, you've caught this a lot as you've read through Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers as this keeps coming out, talking about the blood, the blood, the blood of the animals, and so, so our relationship with animals has changed. But God also then highlights how we are to live in this world in relationship with one another. See, the first way that sin, as a, as after, excuse me, after Adam and Eve were kicked out of the garden, was seen in Genesis chapter 4 is through murder, right? It's through Cain killing his brother Abel. And so God addresses that fact here in Genesis chapter 9, and he highlights the sanctity, the value of human life. Because even after sin has entered the world, he highlights the great value of mankind. Why? At the end of verse 6 there, for God made man in his own image. As fallen and as messed up as we are, we still are unique amongst all of creation that we are made in God's image. And that gives us great value. This is why there's such seriousness here of taking a life that that God is saying that in this world a reminder that all of life is sacred. And the Old Testament expounds on this in Exodus and Leviticus as it includes and fleshes out for us this understanding of the dignity of life of all people. It's why, it's why in the Old Testament, it talks about the dignity for the foreigner. No matter the, their ethnic status, what they look like, that there's dignity and worth, and they should be accepted and valued for they're made in the image of God. Of the refugee, regardless of legal status, they're made in the image of God and have great value and worth. And even in the Old Testament, we see the value of human life before it's born that there were penalties if a woman lost a pregnancy because of an act of violence done towards her because that baby and the mother was considered a human life. That, that we in our world are to be about humanity and life flourishing from before it's born to its very end of life. That it's a value that God has placed. And so God in these verses is giving commands for how this world should now function under this covenant that he is making. And as we look here, we see the second characteristic of God's covenants is this. The second characteristic is that God's covenants are meant for our flourishing. God's covenants are meant for our, for human flourishing when we live under and follow the covenants, submit to the covenants that God has placed in our lives. It actually leads to the best life that we could have. See, we understand this in a lot of different settings. We understand that, that when, when rules are followed, that when certain guidelines are in place, they're not just meant to push down, to restrict, but actually meant to offer the best life possible. And it's the same with God. When God gives rules and guidelines for us in his word, it's not to restrict or to limit or to harm us in any way, but to allow us to flourish into the life that God wants us to have. One of the easiest examples of thinking about how we see this in our everyday life is a parent's relationship with their child. Why once a kid starts to be able to crawl around and certainly when they walk, why does a parent baby proof the house? Why do they move sharp objects up high? Why do they make sure that they can't get into plugs and get into dangerous things? Why? Well, because there's certain guidelines that they're trying to instill into their kids. There's certain safety things. Why when their kid is five and wants to play outside, why does the parent so emphasize that you can't just run into the street? You can't run across the street just because your ball went there. You need to come get a parent or teaching them how to do that. Why when a kid is 10, why do his parents not just go allow them to hang out with their friends on their own for as long as they want? Or how about when that kid finally gets to high school and gets a driver's license and they can go out, but you still need to be home by nine? Right? There's still rules and restrictions in place. And the kid might think, man, my parents are out to ruin my life. I know that's probably what most of us thought. right? When we were kids, when we were teenagers, my, my, my parents are out to ruin my life with all these restrictions they've put in place. And it can be easy for us to actually have that attitude towards God. To think, man, God is out to ruin my life with these things that he's put in place in these covenant relationships. All these guidelines and restrictions that God has for me, they're going to ruin my life. But actually, following God's covenants, living according to his ways, brings about human flourishing. These are the basic things that God was trying to get across to his people here in Genesis chapter 9. See, the guidelines that God has in place for our lives leads us to ultimate happiness. The guidelines that God has in place for us that we see revealed in scripture are actually those that are meant to lead to our great happiness, our enjoyment, our fulfillment. A few examples of this. In a world that says that we should seek personal fulfillment and satisfaction however you want, especially through relationships, through sexuality, express in any way, however you want, just seek your own happiness and fulfillment. It's so interesting how when they go through surveys of who are happiest in their relationships in this world, despite all this freedom that we now have in our world, guess who always comes out as being the happiest? Those who are in a monogamous one partner relationship and have only been with one partner for their entire life. It's almost like we could say, huh, I think I heard about that somewhere in some book that that's actually best. It's been fascinating the last five years, the rise of what's called minimalism. This push against consumerism and saying, hey, things don't make you happy. What really matters is relationships and family. These things are what brings value, not just consuming things and filling your life with stuff. This, this idea has come mainstream in our world and we could almost stop to think, huh, I wonder who would have said that seeking fulfillment in stuff doesn't actually make you happy. See, Jesus didn't come to ruin your life with any rules. Jesus came to bring you full life. In John ten ten, he says, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. And so when we're in a covenant relationship with God, the best way is to submit to what God says for he knows what is best for us. And if you're struggling because God's word says something that pushes against kind of our natural inclinations towards life, remember God has given us his word and he's given us himself and what he has for us is our best. He wants our lives to flourish. And when we submit and follow after his ways rather than our own ways, it ultimately leads to greater happiness and fulfillment in our lives. This passage continues. We're going to look at this last paragraph in chapter nine here, starting at verse eight. It says this, Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you. And with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, and every beast of the earth with you, as many as came out of the ark, it is for every beast of the earth. I establish my covenant with you, that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood. And never again, that word's repeated a lot there, never. Never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you. For all future generations, that includes you and me, for all future generations, I have set my bow in the cloud and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And the waters shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh." When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. So God solidifies this covenant with them. The obligation, notice that, that this covenant is entirely dependent upon God. God initiates the covenant and he himself says, I will uphold it. I will keep this covenant. And he gives a sign, a, a visible symbol, a physical thing that we can see as a token of what this sign is. And of course, that's the rainbow right? The rainbow placed in the clouds that God will never again destroy the earth. I love how one commentator put it, it is a visible token of God's invisible grace towards us. Even today, right, we land in that promise of that covenant to every future generation that we will not be destroyed like this. Why? Because of God's grace, because of God's promise that he made towards us, And I saw a rainbow the other day when I was driving home from church and it's a visible reminder again of God's invisible grace and his faithfulness to his people. Notice that twice as God was making this covenant, he said that I will see it and I will remember. I will remember. If you go back to last week in chapter eight, verse one, that phrase God remembered is the crux, the turning point of this whole narrative story. And God is saying, just as I remembered Noah and brought his family safe through the flood, so I will always remember you and I will be faithful to my promise. The third characteristic of God's covenants towards us is they are meant to bring about reassurance in our lives. God's covenants that he makes towards us are meant to bring about reassurance that God has not abandoned us, that God is with us and that God is still faithful to his covenants. And these signs reassure us of God's covenant promises to us. See signs of the covenant bring about reminders and assure us that God is a God who always keeps his promises. This idea of signs going with covenants is started here, but it goes throughout scripture. Just a few chapters after this, when God makes a covenant with Abraham, he gives him a sign of that covenant, which was followed for generations to come, which was the sign of circumcision. That Abraham had a covenant made with him and circumcision was the sign, the visible symbol of the inward reality, the covenant that God had made with him. Later in the next book of the Bible in Exodus, when God makes a covenant with his people, what's called the Mosaic covenant, he issues the promise to Moses and to all of Israel. The the sign, the the visible symbol of that was the Sabbath day. It was the Sabbath day seen in Exodus 31 where they didn't work. And that was the visible symbol of their relationship with God and his faithfulness to keep his promises. See, if you're a follower of Jesus tonight, you are in what is called the new covenant relationship with God. That God has now entered into a covenant relationship with you and me through Jesus Christ. And so what are the signs, the visible realities, the visible signs of that relationship? Well, they're twofold. First, it's baptism. Baptism, which is a visible symbol of our participation in the death going under the water and then coming up the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's a visible symbol of an inward reality of the gospel change in our lives. The second is communion of partaking the Lord's Supper together. It's a reminder, a physical way we remind ourselves of Jesus's death on our behalf and for us on the cross. That Jesus's covenant towards us is in his blood and that it still takes effect for us today. See, celebrating and remembering these signs as we even have had a chance to tonight with communion, they don't save us in and of themselves. The baptism doesn't save us. Communion does not save us. The acts don't save us, but they are important because what they do is they are visible symbols that remind our hearts, that reassure our hearts once and again of the covenant faithfulness of God to his people. They're a visible token of God's grace towards us and they are reminders towards you and I who are in this new covenant relationship with God that Jesus's death for us is indeed still enough for our salvation it assures us that no matter what no matter how life may seem no matter how crazy this world gets God is a covenant making God but perhaps more importantly God is a covenant keeping God we can rest assured of our salvation, not because of any efforts we have, but because God has moved towards us in his grace, giving us what we don't deserve. And then he reassures us through these signs where we remember and remind ourselves again that he is faithful to us. And when he has entered into a relationship with us, that he will never abandon us. He will never leave us or forsake us. And our salvation is secure because of a covenant relationship that we have with God. God, we thank you that you are a covenant making and a covenant keeping God. That just as so long ago, you made this covenant with Noah, we've seen it prove faithful over hundreds and thousands of years. God, that you indeed are faithful to your promises and you are faithful to all the promises you've made us in the new covenant relationship with you. God, we thank you for the assurance that we have because of who you are and what you've done in our lives and in this world. We thank you for the promises, the covenants that you make with us. We pray all this in Jesus' name, amen.